Good evening. So happy to be here with everybody this evening back in Lubbock. Allie and I were in Amarillo this morning, and so we missed worshiping with you here, but there's good work going on in other places in the kingdom, so it's an exciting time to be here back together to worship God. Um, that's what we've been doing. I mean, if we're honest about what we do in all of our lives, it's worship to God. We just have a special time here on Sundays where we get to be together with people of like faith and mind to sing together, pray together, and most importantly, partake of these emblems that we got to partake of today. Now the point in our service has come where we get to study from God's Word together. So I invite you, if you're here this evening, if you're tuning in online, wherever you may be, open your Bibles up with me tonight. We're going to be in the book of James. James chapter 1, as, as you're turning over there, I just want to express my gratitude for the opportunity to be able to present to you a portion from God's Word. It's a special time for uh, the fourth Sunday night of the month for people like myself who like to try some of this, that the elders have given us the opportunity to do so. So I'm thankful to the elders for that, and I appreciate all of you for being here. And um, hopefully something that we talk about this evening will be valuable to you. Should be, it's from the Word of God. If it's not, come talk to me about it, and, and let's make sure we're on the same page and get into the Word. James chapter 1. I'll be reading from the New King James Version this evening. James chapter 1, I just want to begin here in verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Now, a lot of times when we do a textual type study in a letter, we take this introduction to the letter and we breeze by it really quickly because there's not a lot of content. There's so much that comes later in the letter that we don't spend very much time on these. I don't really want to spend a ton of time tonight in this first verse. I actually preached this sermon in Abilene a few weeks ago and probably spent a good like 20 minutes in verse 1 just talking about some of the words and, and uh, finding some significance. I don't want to do that tonight. I want to keep moving along, but just a couple of thoughts from this. This uh, James that, that wrote this epistle, uh, there's maybe some debate over who it is, but I think most people agree that James is the brother of Jesus. Uh, Jesus' fleshly brother. Uh, just some interesting facts about James. James being Jesus' brother, there was a point in James' life where he witnessed Jesus' physical ministry on the earth, yet he rejected Jesus as the Messiah. We see in John chapter 7 and verse 5 that even his brothers did not believe in him. So, so starting out, if this is the brother of Jesus, we have a man who's already had this journey of faith where he's gone from complete total rejection of Jesus. How on earth could you possibly be the Messiah? We see that throughout. And I think all four of the Gospels are in agreement on this. There's a point in time where James does not believe in Jesus as the Messiah to one of the prominent church leaders in Jerusalem. We see in Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, we see that there's a council gathered in Jerusalem to discuss the, uh, the issue of circumcision. There were, as we know in, in our personal studies, and as it plagued the first century church, we see throughout much of the New Testament, circumcision was an issue. People wanted to enforce circumcision on those whom it did not apply to. 
And we see in this council that, that the congregation of people that were gathered together listened to Paul and Barnabas as they spoke about the miracles and signs that God worked through the Gentiles. And we see in verse 13 that after they had become silent, it was James, and I believe this is James, Jesus' brother, the same guy who wrote this epistle that spoke up. He says, after they became quiet or silent, James answered saying, men and brethren, Listen to me. And he goes on with his, um, with his speech. I think it's just important to note that James spoke with authority. He spoke in the same platform as Paul and Barnabas. This man has really taken a journey from rejecting the Messiah to being a prominent leader in the church. And he identifies himself as a bondservant. This idea of being a bondservant. It's metaphorically one who gives himself wholly over to another's will. I see Caleb squinting to read the definition, so I obviously didn't make the font big enough. But it says, metaphorically, one who gives himself over to another's will. Those whose service is used by Christ in extending and advancing his cause among men. It's used of apostles, of preachers, and teachers of the gospel, and of true worshipers of Christ. I think there's maybe two reasons why James identifies himself as a bondservant of Christ. The first I guess maybe three. The first is to establish authority. The things that he, are speak, that he is speaking are from God. He is a servant of God. He's given himself over to God. He's speaking on God's behalf. The second thing would be this idea of credibility. If, if he's speaking with the authority of God, he's establishing himself as credible because he is from God. He is working for God, but it's also commonality. He's speaking to the brethren on their level. I never really thought about the fact that this idea of bondservant, as it actually translated, includes those who are true worshipers of Christ. We talk a lot about those who give themselves over to Christ. We talk a lot about that aspect of it. We look in, in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23, just a couple quotes from this section of verse. Uh, Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. It's, you want to learn more about what being a bondservant is, go to Romans chapter 6 in those verses. But it, but it speaks to those who truly worship God in spirit and truth. The people who he's writing to are fellow bondservants. That's, that's an amazing thing. It, it established that commonality that they have. Uh, then he addresses this to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Uh, we refer to these people a lot of times as Messianic Jews, people who, who converted from Judaism to Christianity, people who, I mean, these people who he's writing to likely would have been some of the people back in, in Acts 15 who were causing some of the problems over circumcision. But more importantly than that, I want to consider these people's journey for just a minute. The 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. The church began in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. The people who were there were Jews. In Acts chapter 2 verse 5, it says, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Think about that for a minute. On the day of Pentecost, there's Jews from every nation under heaven who have come to Jerusalem to this one place to partake in this holy day. And we know how the story goes. Peter gets up, he preaches, and following that sermon in verse number 41, we read that that day, 3,000 souls were added to the church. 
So there were men from other nations who come to Jerusalem. They hear these sermons, and they're baptized. Now consider what they left just to be in Jerusalem in the first place. These people left home. They left probably family, friends, jobs, their source of income. They left these things behind in their home nation to come to Jerusalem to worship God, and their lives were changed completely. They're baptized. They become believers of Jesus. And they didn't immediately go back home. We see in verses uh, 44 through 47, we aren't going to read all of these, but, but in these verses we see that, that the disciples stayed together in Jerusalem. They stayed together. They had all things in common. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and teaching. They shared all things. They, they broke bread together. They had all things in common. These people stayed together in Jerusalem. There was sacrifice involved in being a Christian. Then you work your way through the book of Acts. You see all the things that they would have witnessed. And the Lord continued to add to the church. And these brethren continued to stay together. Until we get to Acts chapter 8. When this great persecution arises against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, it says, They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. These people, they've left their home. They've left all this stuff behind. They've come to Jerusalem. They've seen these great things happening, and now they're finally forced out of Jerusalem. And they're scattered because of persecution. Now, I wanted to spend a little bit of time lingering on that because this idea has has been on my mind, and it might have been on some of yours uh, over this last week. We we see our world is um, (laughs) changing maybe right now. Uh, we, we really don't know what, it, what our world is going to look like going forward because of some of the events that are happening in Eastern Europe right now. We, we see, you know, and the point of the sermon is not to get up here and talk about Russia and Ukraine the whole time. I don't want to make this a political statement or anything. But I did notice as I was um, reading some of the stuff about this conflict that's taking, this war that's taking place, as Russia's coming into Ukraine, if, if a foreign army coming into this country... I've seen a couple things that were encouraging and maybe a little bit shocking to me. I saw a video a few days ago of a group of Christians gathered together in a metro station in Ukraine as Russia was at the border singing praises to God. I've seen pictures of Christians continuing to gather together as the enemy pushes their way through Ukraine. I saw pictures of an individual being baptized As their life around them is crumbling, everything is completely changing. There are people there who are continuing to look to Jesus. And it's a powerful thing that we see going on there. And and it's something that, that we may experience here one day. And as I think about those things that are happening in the world and and Christians that are being displaced and and their lives that are being changed, and I think about the reality that that could be us, I couldn't help but think of James. You, You can't not think of James when you really think about who he's writing to. James is writing to Christians who are being persecuted, Christians who have been displaced, Christians who have given up a lot to be where they're at, yet they're forced out yet again. 
And, and there's some things here that, that I think that, that, that are a benefit to me as I think about these things, and so I hope they are to us as well. As we go on, verse 1, simply a greeting. But as we move forward to uh, chapter, or verse 2, rather, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That's so backwards, right? We, we think of various trials, and, and I, don't, I don't know, but, but I'm of the belief that, that he is not specifically and solely referring to spiritual trials. These people were being persecuted. Their lives, their physical well-being was being put in jeopardy. So we extend that to us today. We think about the trials that we face. They could be physical, mental, emotional. They could be spiritual. Whatever trials, whatever various trials you face, rather than be brought low by those, rather than being torn down away from Jesus, count it, count it all joy. Count it all joy. You know, we've talked about this frequently when we talk about joy. Happiness and joy are not necessarily the same thing. Happiness is the outward expression that we have. I mean, it's how we feel outwardly, but joy is what's from the heart. From the heart, when we fall into various trials, we're to be joyful. And he tells us why. It's not because we're being beat down. It's because we know that the testing of our faith Whatever our trials are, at some point, if they get bad enough, they'll test our faith. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. There's righteous fruit that can be uh, produced. It's growing through trials. The one that he specifically identifies here is patience. But let patience have its perfect work. Now I'll be the first to tell you, patience takes a lot of work for me. It takes a lot of work for me to have patience. I, I've always been told I have a short temper. And so this idea of patience to me, that's a lot of work. But the thing is, is if we put in the work to have patience in our lives, patience works in our life. It's not just, it doesn't just take work to have patience. Patience works on us. Let patience have its perfect work. That you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. This idea of perfection that James talks about here, I don't believe he's talking about the idea of being completely without fault. If you go back and you translate this word, I, I think the idea that he's talking about here, he, he elaborates on this idea of completeness, lacking nothing. Uh, maybe a better word is maturity, that you may be mature. And the idea is, is that you have this well-rounded life that doesn't have holes all in it. it it's, it's, it's made whole and mature because of what God is working through us through these trials. It, it's a pretty powerful thing. He goes on, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask him faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So James just got through talking about what it takes to be perfect, complete. And then he's like, okay, now if you lack this, ask of God. 
Specifically, he's talking about wisdom. I don't know how we get through trials without wisdom. If we don't have the wisdom to see past the physical things immediately in front of our faces, how can we get through those trials? The wisdom of God sees beyond the physical. The wisdom of God sees sees the spiritual results that James was just talking about in the prior verses. So if you don't have that wisdom, the type of wisdom that sees beyond the physical, ask of it from God. Ask of it from God. Because God will give it. There's a way in which we're to ask, though. And, and so he's talking about wisdom specifically here, but the lesson that he's about to talk about applies to prayer holistically. When you go to God in prayer, you go to Him in faith with no doubting. That's hard to do. It's hard to go to God in our human wisdom and, and go there with absolutely no doubting. But what aren't we doubting? What should we have faith in? What does this look like? You, well, you ask in faith. You ask in faith. I think we should just define faith, right? Hebrews 11, verse 1. Everybody knows it. Sorry. 